Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latofsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And we're going to get creepy with it today. We're doing some creepy stuff. We're always doing creepy stuff. Pretty much, on the yeah. Show. But now we're going to get with creeps. We're going to get with the creeps. We actually, technically kind of three things, but we've been settling in pretty nicely, I think, and I've been really enjoying it, how we've been settling into doing pairs mm. and either doing like a thing in a remake or sometimes actually a thing in a remake <laughs> or or like something that fits together. Uh, and this time we decided, uh, particularly as we're like heading closer and closer to Halloween time, veering more into like good solid like classic or cult horror and different eras. And had sitting for a very long time the director's cut DVD version of Night of the Creeps from 1986, which is one of those. Well, neither one of us had seen it. I I think I've seen parts of it in the past. Both of us have at least seen clips of it in other things. Well, we also saw in In Search of Darkness mm-hmm. that fantastic 80s documentary, which I think is still on Shutter and both. Part one and part two are out. They're working on part three. They're also working on and in search of uh, that will not related to the Leonard Nimoy in search of. (laughs) That will do science fiction. And that's also going to be cool. But it's like a great way to make yourself a list of things that you missed. Mm. And um, I've seen a lot of people on Twitter doing also for this season. It's been kind of cool. I've been seeing a lot of people, they've been retweeting from the In Search of Darkness people saying they're doing like a marathon Halloween viewing where they're going through every movie that the documentary shows, which is a cute idea. Night of the Creeps is one of the ones I saw clips of in there and it reminded me, I've always had it sitting there and I've always wanted to see it, mainly because it's also one of those missing chapters for me. It's an 80s movie that's a cult classic to a lot of people that I never saw in its entirety never developed any emotional connection to and have no context for the way some people that grow up at the same time do and see if it would fit comfortably in with all the stuff that we love. And also the other thing I knew is it's sort of in the grand trilogy for for all intents and purposes of the great 80s Tom Atkins movies where you got The Fog and you got uh, Halloween 3 and Night of the Creeps for a lot of people, except that for me, this one's always been missing because I never really had any context for it. Which is crazy, too, that neither of us had seen it because I I love Tom Atkins. We, we all love Tom Atkins. <laughs> right. And Tom Atkins loves us. He genuinely does, I think. I think he does. I always thought that was kind of bizarre and sort of awkwardy. He seems like the most chill guy. He's awesome. So so I thought, well, we got to do that. And then we were also figuring what would we do to pair with it. And uh, as I think we've already talked about on the show several times, we've been just very steeped in mystery science theater as our go-to background noise for the last couple of years, really, at, at, at least. And one of the ones we're, that are, well, we regularly revisit all of them, but one of the ones we see a lot is The Creeping Terror which is a 1964 movie that's one of the ones often regarded as one of the worst movies ever made. In this case, it's well-deserved. And the Mike era of Mystery Science Theater episode is great. And we recently, well, I recently discovered during a a look for what other Blu-rays I could pick up, which, by the way, support physical media in every possible way 
and support all of the companies that still continue to put out stunning and wonderful special editions and rare stuff on Blu-ray. Uh, doesn't matter about 4 I don't care about 4K, but I mean Blu-ray, any physical media, because this whole notion that streaming somehow opens the universe to you is a fallacy. And there's a lot of stuff missing and going missing as we switch further and further into digital. So buy physical media and support companies like Scream Factory, Shout Factory, and Severin and Synapse and all these places that put out great stuff, especially horror and science fiction. And especially as streaming continues to get more and more sub-segmented. Yeah. So like everyone has their own service and it used to be you could pull up you know, one of maybe like three different services and you'd have a pretty wide ranging selection. And now it feels like we will go through in a night like 10 different services and find nothing that we want to watch. And rights are all over the place and nobody thought about streaming when they sort of figured out their rights agreements. And if they can't figure it out now, well, then it's just never going to be on streaming. It's I was, complicated. I was about to say, the other thing, too, is even, like, for series that you like, you'll find, like, three of them are on one thing and two are on another because the rights are different, because the distribution. It's terrible. So support this stuff because the Blu-rays and, and Scream Factor, I think we've talked about quite a bit, has been our go-to for a lot of collecting. But Severin, Synapse, there are a bunch of others. Blue Underground, I think, is still around. There are a number of others. I try to be a bit more... Um, Direct and and by the way, this is not like it's not like a real show where I get anything for advertising anything. <laughs> we'll take it though if you want I'd, to kick anything back our oh, way. Oh, I would love that, but believe me, <laughs> they're not offering anything. In fact, at least a couple of them have been downright rude to me on occasion. <laughs> I can tell you stories, but but still, I love their products. So, uh, but anyway, we digress. Yeah, we <laughs> quite a bit. So, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, you picked up a Blu-ray. Picked up a Blu-ray, The Creeping Terror, that actually The Creeping Terror is the extra on it, because the actual Blu-ray is a 2014 documentary, and I say documentary, it's actually like a dramatization slash biopic slash partly documentary, it's a weird thing, we'll talk about it. Put air quotes on every single one of those words. Yeah, called The Creep Behind the Camera, and it's about the, the man that created and spearheaded the Creeping Terror, and then a restoration of The Creeping Terror is on the disc, and it does look amazing for that kind of movie. It's the best you're going to get of really a very poorly shot movie, but it looks pretty good. And it's not, the Mystery Science Theater isn't on that disc because they're not related to Shout Factor or anything like that. So we thought, oh, Creeps. So there we are with Creeps. To start off, we'll start with Night of the Creeps. I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. Not only is this a movie that is a cult classic to a lot of people, it also brings us back into the focus that was much more a regular part of my public persona and commenting for many years because it is very firmly a zombie movie. One of the rare ones that I didn't ever get, as I said, too steeped in, and also, way back when I did the first book I did on zombies with Andy, Zombie Mania, we did not do a chapter on this one because neither one of us had any context for it. And it was it was a choice we made at the time, knowing that that one would probably be odd to a lot of people. Like, why didn't you do Night of the Creeps? Mm. It's in the index. But I always figured, well, if we ever expanded the book, we'd do Night of the Creeps as a chapter in the next one. And, of course, 
my plans for that then evolved into Journey of the Living Dead as a very different book, so we didn't do that. But Night of the Creeps is a zombie movie, but it's also a deliberate and very tongue-in-cheek homage to 50s B science fiction, in which the principal concept is that an alien experiment of indeterminate origin and purpose is launched from a ship in space, lands on Earth, and basically uh, the opening is very blob-like. Thing lands on Earth, thing cracks open, gets somebody. It's actually set in the 50s. The opening's in black and white, which is a nice touch. Then you flash forward to the 80s, and it turns out it's a group of alien slugs. They basically just look like leeches that will jump into you, mainly through your mouth. And... I think it's exclusively through your mouth, as yeah. I can tell. And, uh kills you and then manipulates your body in order to spread and get other hosts. Now, that means that this premise fits very firmly within a subset of zombie movies that reaches all the way back to the 50s in which aliens are depicted as manipulating human corpses as puppets. You could technically reach back to things like Plan 9 and Invisible Invaders. In Invisible Invaders, for example... The aliens are actually also inhabiting the corpses, only they're invisible humanoid forms that are, like, entering the corpses. And there are many other examples of this. And then there are also connections with the ID alien slugs, like uh, Jason Goes to Hell. Jason himself has now become an alien, like a slug. That's the, um, probably the weirdest alien yeah. slug, yes. Uh, maybe not alien, but whatever. And uh, I mean, who knows? He goes to space eventually. He so. does go to space eventually. <laughs> And then, uh, and then for many people, there is basically a deliberate homage to this film and a sort of remake and uh, affectionate tribute to it in the movie that James Gunn did, Slither, which I cannot watch because, as we've talked about before, that's a movie that uh, goes very strongly into the area of body horror and, like, squicky, disgusting stuff that I absolutely cannot stomach. Uh, so I can't watch that. But I've seen clips enough to know that I can't watch that. I mean, in this, the slugs themselves are pretty comedic. I mean, well, this it's, is... It's also the 80s, so it's like it's never going to get that elaborate. Or, and, and the zombies are treated very old school. Mm. Um, in fact, the faces look very much like the same exact designs you were seeing around about the same time in those years. Like, this is 86, so if you look like Night of the Comet in 84, Return of the Living Dead 85, the faces are identical to a lot of... That the hollowed out, making it look like the skull is kind of coming through look. Mm -hmm. Very nice, and um, but very traditional looking. One of the things I really liked about this movie, really right from the start, is that it's very clear that this movie is focused on itself being an homage in a way that movies weren't doing yet then. That it would be like another 10 years, really, before everyone would sort of hold up like Wes Craven as sort of the godfather of like meta horror and self-referential. Except, I mean, this was around 10 years prior and it's very self-referential down to the point where it is sort of playing off Plan 9 right at the start 
and you've got a girl on the phone asking someone if they've been to see Plan 9 because it's yeah. taking place like the summer, I guess, it gets released. Yeah, and... they actually said it in 59. So yeah. yeah, and then later on you see Plan 9 playing on a television when we're in the 80s and it mm-hmm. kind of like compounds that meta-ness of it. And it's a really... It's something that we're really used to now mm-hmm. because there's so much that's self-referential and there's so much that kind of pays tribute. And I feel like this was doing it at a time when maybe that was so out there that people didn't quite latch onto it or get it at the time. I think it's possible. But it's one yeah. of the reasons it's become sort of such a cult favorite is because we've all been sort of inundated with this style to the point where you can appreciate it for what it's doing in a way maybe people couldn't then. should also mention, so in a way, this also fits very neatly in, in several subsets of movies. Like it also is very much a part of an 80s, mid 80s surge in like teen high school and particularly like freshman at college kind of almost Revenge of the Nerds kind of um teen hijinks stuff where we focus in on two guys you know our lead guy who's part of the lively family teen witch's uh, brother jason lively (laughs) and his friend and sidekick who's very much like the the slight comic relief jc played by steve marshall and chris is our lead and like you know chris wants to get a girl and have sex like every guy in these movies does and jc wants to help him get there and doesn't seem nearly as motivated himself, which brings up some other issues we'll talk about soon that are interesting about JC for a lot of people looking at this movie now uh, as adults that may have grown up with it. And then as our main girl, we have Jill Whitlow as Cynthia, who, if you watch the behind the scenes stuff, has just become an older version of herself in a way that sounds simplistic, but I think you know exactly what I mean when I say that. I think they all kind of have. Yeah. Watching the behind the scenes stuff was great because... We don't usually do that in preparation for like talking about it. Yeah. But they all seem to genuinely just love making this movie together. They really had fun with it. Yeah. And knowing that after watching it, it makes sense because a lot of times you can watch a movie and you can tell that like the cast has gelled. Yeah. Like they're they're having a great time with each other while they're working. We've got our usual jock guys, and and the cool part, one of the cool aspects of this is, um, I think, by the way, just in general, I should say, right from the outset, we're doing our full spoiler kind of thing, but this is a, these are both older movies, so come on. But I I should say at the outset, so like the, the basic summation of reaction, I think, is we enjoyed it, but I can't foresee this being a movie that I will regularly revisit in the way that many people do. Because for me, it was interesting to see it, and I thought it was good, but it still feels distant to me in a way that it wouldn't have if I'd grown up with it. But I just didn't. So it's it's not the, like, I'll put The Fog and Halloween 3 on for Tom Atkins any day of the week. This, not so much. I'm not that he's not great in it, as usual. But... I don't know, we could do Lively Fest, where we watch Teen Witch and Night of the Creeps okay, back well, to back. That'll work. A little Halloween-a-thon with the Lively... I don't know if Blake's done any horror movies. Uh, I'd have to look that up. I maybe we, maybe we throw up. in Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Um, there's, there's something sinister about those well, pants. Well, there is some horror in that. <laughs> um, and there's also Lori Lively, who's one of the other sisters, and I just realized she actually plays Lori in this, so there's another Lively that sneaks in here. Oh. Yeah. 
but one of the other things is, frankly, I find this to be one of the most overused and silliest things that people do in, in self-referential horror movies. And frankly, I wish they'd stop. I mean, obviously, this is 1986. This is a long time ago. But it happens now with everybody that grabs an iPhone or a camera and thinks they're making a horror movie which is the thing where they think they're the first person in the world to name every character after a horror director. <laughs> now, of course, back when this was done, that wasn't so much yet. So, okay, give Night of the Creeps a pass. But for movies today where everybody thinks, hey, I'm going to name my character Romero, don't. Just please don't. So, for instance, our lead is Chris Romero. JC is JC Hooper. She's Cronenberg. Tom Atkins' character is Ray Cameron. And then other characters throughout, including many of the cops, have last names like Landis, Ramey, Craven, Bava, Minor. They really cover everything. So it's cute, but, you know, now it's time to give that up. It's been a long time. If you're going to do it, do like one character. Yeah. So Or like name the town Carpenter or so something. So these two guys, uh, and that's been done too. Yeah, it's been done. Bit. Yeah. Uh, and these two guys, you know, they're it's pledge week and they they want to get in a frat. So it's like a bit of an animal house, Revenge of the Nerds kind of vibe to some of that. I don't know if they want to get in a frat. They just want to meet girls and the well, girls are yeah. at the frats, but they don't seem that inclined to want to be part of the oh, frat. Oh, no, no, not in a real way. Because yeah. obviously they know what, you know, frats are terrible. So, um... And then the other aspect is we've got Tom Atkins, who in this case is coming in as the most cliched, hard-bitten detective guy who literally falls asleep reading Raymond Chandler novels, just, I guess, to, like, you know, brush up on, you know, how he should behave. And his uh, his trademark that anybody who's a fan of this already knows is that he answers every phone call and starts every conversation with, Thrill me. Which I'll be honest, as someone who didn't go in as a fan, even for me, and as someone who loves Tom Atkins, that got tired around the second or third time. But I get it. It's if you if you like the movie, you like that, I guess. And that apparently has been a real thing, like where everybody loves that. So, all right. I like it as an answering the phone thing. I think maybe it's like when you walk into a room and you're starting a conversation and you also use it. I'm like, you need more than one catchphrase for that. But also, I mean... I was starting to get a vibe like the guy in Zombie Nightmare, another movie that we usually revisit through Mystery Science Theater, the, the forensic guy. It's like, <laughs> I staked my semi-professional reputation on it. I thought, oh, God, <laughs> thrill me. But I mean, overall, he's great. The movie clearly is, is not taking anything seriously. You got David Paymer in here, who we tend to see more often lately in like his... 30 seconds that he appears as a plastic surgeon and a bad teacher, but has a long career as a great comedic character actor. And he looks very young here as basically patient zero who, well, I mean, patient zero is the guy from the fifties. They have in cryogenic freeze, the kid that originally got the slug, but then Pamer is the scientist on duty who gets the next, who's like infected next. Mm -hmm. And then he's basically the one that carries it out from there. And it was weird seeing him in this kind of part because I, again, never saw this before. So my context for him more is like being Billy Crystal's brother in Mr. Saturday Night or being in a lot of... He's recently in Star Trek Picard. He's an old friend of Picard's who we never saw before until the moment he showed up. But it was interesting to see him in this. And so then, of course, the, the slug starts spreading and we got our usual thing of everybody's going to have to suit up with flamethrowers and guns and try to fight off the zombies. And one of the cute little gimmicks that I really liked 
was the idea that the jocks, who are always the villains in these movies when they're normal teen movies, also become the zombies. So you got a bus full of jocks who are now the monsters, and really they already were, but now they're alien slug zombies. So you get the horror aspect. And I like that part too. It kind of showed me how in media that I've already seen that there are probably little callbacks to 80s horror movies that were sort of missing in my repertoire. Mm. I don't know how well you remember, I guess it's the third season of American Horror Story. Um, It's Coven. Oh, Coven, I remember pretty well. And like right towards the beginning, they're at a frat party and the guy's like hop back on the bus and the bus is driving away and one of the witches like causes their bus to flip and crash. I don't remember that part. Okay. And so it's like, then they piece, they're in pieces and they piece one of them back together and bring him back essentially as a zombie. Isn't that Evan Peters? It's Evan Peters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel a little bit, maybe like that could have been a call back to this now that I've seen this. Cause when Very I saw possibly. the bus flip, I'm like, I've seen this before. And then I realized yeah. it's from something else. I do remember, by the way, Coven, I think, was the season that had what I think was one of the greatest episodes, like zombie episodes of television mm-hmm. I'd seen in years. I thought like the one episode they did that was like the New Orleans zombie attack was better than any episode I'd seen that year of Walking Dead or Game of Thrones. It was just fantastic. I mean, it's honestly the only season of American Horror Story that I find rewatchable. It's very good. Um, it's very good to, I mean, yeah. digress again. We're going to do it a lot. They brought those characters back later, which was, um, well, I don't I don't watch it. So whatever. If you enjoy it, you enjoy it. That's fine. Yeah. I, I kind of, I, I lost, sort of lost interest Coven in it Coven I really time. liked, and I liked that Stevie Nicks got to be in it. And yeah. that was awesome. All right, we're, we're not talking. Anyway. <laughs> Night of the Creeps. Next on American Horror Story Podcast. No, no. But what um, I mean is that it's it's interesting to me because I feel like whoever was making that probably had Night of the Creeps as one of, like, like specifically that episode. Like, I don't know how involved Ryan Murphy is in every single right. episode, but whoever's writing that story beat there clearly had an affection for Night of the Creeps. And that's something we could... I don't want to start doing a lot of typing right now while we're recording, but I, we could obviously look that up and see. For all we know, that was mentioned in the we could. in an interview. And, you know, so that makes sense, though. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You fill in... That's one of the things I like for both of us is you fill these in, then you suddenly realize, oh, that's where that came from. Mm-hmm. Or that's where that... Yeah. Yeah, and I've had that a lot, especially watching things that are even older than that, like gaps yeah. that I have from, like, the 50s or 60s. Um but I think really for me, what makes it a movie that perhaps doesn't grab me like it may have grabbed others if they just saw it at a certain time in their life or saw it in the 80s when it was clearly very different from a lot of other stuff that was being made at the time. And maybe that's why it it grabbed a hold of someone. I think for me... My issue with it is that it's not a bad movie. Um, it's it's a decent movie. It's got characters that are interesting and you like them or you hate them. You know, if you're supposed to like them, you like them. If you're supposed to hate them, you hate them. And the plot kind of progresses and moves and it comes to its own conclusion. But I feel like it needed another pass 
in terms of writing because there's no connective tissue to it. So like it feels like a series of vignettes or like a series of scenes that have been stacked after each other, but they don't necessarily connect. And there's a lot of things that just never get answered. And I don't necessarily need an answer to everything, but you kind of set things up like there would be an answer, but it's like there isn't one. Here's the thing about it. I agree with you. And there are two aspects to it. One is that the more we either visit things that I, one of us doesn't know or both of us don't know, the more I'm starting to feel like I'm getting toward a more general understanding that sometimes if you don't see something at the right time in your life in the right context, a story feels like it doesn't fit together in a way that it does when you see it at the right time because your brain is at the right stage to knit those things together in a way that you can't as an adult visiting it now. Mm. That's what I sometimes feel. Like I sometimes feel, why is this story not working for me or feeling like you just said? Like, why does it feel like it's just a bunch of scenes and yet I can watch a movie here from the same year over here that I love and really, if I look at it critically, it's not that different. And then I think, yeah, but the difference is I didn't watch it when I was a kid. I didn't see it in its proper context. And now for me, it's almost like I'm clinically examining it like as an artifact. And it's just not telling me a story the way it would have. I don't know. It's just it's a semi-formed idea, but I'm that's that's the way I'm starting to feel that part of the storytelling is hitting you at the right time. And if you don't, you can see a movie like it's just a collection of pieces. I can see that. And I think it's certainly part of it. I also think I feel that way sometimes even about new movies. Mm. Where sometimes I'll watch a new movie and I'll realize I'm just not at the, the right stage of my life or like my movie viewing like experience that it's striking me or that it's catching me. And so, you know, there also might be things that have been released in the last couple of years that people, and it's not even really an age thing. It's just a matter of like where you are, what you're looking for when you view something. I think both of us tend to view movies now, not just with a critical eye, but sort of with a writer's I, I think both of us are very much keyed in on the story and that we'll enjoy something that has a good story that doesn't have great effects or like doesn't have the best delivery of the lines because we think the story is interesting. You have to be like that if you're a Doctor Who fan too. <laughs> I mean, that's something that I definitely feel like I got from like, you know, you, you look past certain things because you like character and story. And that works for you. I mean, how many times have we looked at like newer things too and and said to one or the other, it's like, it feels like you're watching the edited highlights of a movie and not a movie. Mm -hmm. That's the feeling also. That... So yeah, in a sense, I think that's part of what I felt with this because there's a lot of stuff like it, it even just like right from the opening of the film, which is goofy. It's sort of like, 
these tiny little naked Cupid doll aliens. It really tells you right from the outset, don't take anything seriously no. in this movie because it's, it's going to be goofy. Which, which is, is great. Which is fine. Yeah, it's very cute. I, I like Goofy. It's weird also. It's a great juxtaposition. The inside of that ship looks really dark and gritty and serious, but the aliens in it look incredibly cartoonish and silly. And then that just tells you right away, okay, it's that kind of movie. That's fine. But yeah, it's like this fugitive alien chase where you've got like the two security aliens chasing the one who's got like the tube slung over his shoulder and... You know, they're screaming, like, we can't let the experiment off the ship. And, like, the guy who is carrying it is like, I'm going to let it off the ship. And, like, puts it in a tube, sends it out into space, and it crash lands on Earth. And there's no explanation. Like, who are these people? Why were they experimenting? Like, what is this experiment? What did they think they were doing? Why are they doing it? Why did that one want to shoot it out of the ship? And they're also clearly not human, so... Why is it that, like, is it that the slugs would go for any living thing? Because we do know they do, because they get in the dog. They will get yeah. in other animals as well. But yeah, what's the point? And it, it, it brings up one of the other things, which is that anybody who's a fan already knows this, but there are two endings to this movie. So there's the ending that I remember. Like, if I ever saw this on cable, I always saw the last, like, five minutes and kind of thought, oh, maybe I should see this sometime, and then we just move on. And obviously it wasn't enough to get me to look it up, like, when's it on next? But I would always see the last five minutes. And so I remember very well that, like, any time you saw this on cable or on television or anything like that, it was the ending that also apparently was the ending that went out with the original theatrical release, which is, and again, we're talking about everything. You know that already. Anyway, they think they've defeated the zombies. There's a great... Basically, the the movie also conspires to give you a very good Night of Living Dead siege thing at the end at the sorority house, which, by the way, they reference Night of Living Dead by name also at one point <laughs> in the movie, so that's, that's cool. And then we also found out in the making of that a lot of that siege was shot later, like the whole thing where the two of them are trapped in the little uh, shed was all later on to add more action. And then you think it's over, and the little dog that we already saw had the slugs comes running up to her and the last shot is the dog expelling a slug and like the implication being it's going to get the main girl so like it's really dark because dark and comic though because the whole thing is silly but it suggests oh nobody's going to win they're going to go down too and that's the ending that's always been but apparently it's not the ending that writer director fred decker wanted or the ending that was originally shot and now you can watch it restored with this director's cut, the original ending, which involves Atkins' character staying behind to blow up the house. He wanted to kill himself anyway. And what, what I think is one of the... Uh, remind me that we'll talk about the dark aspects of this movie, because mm-hmm. we've got to get to that. The two dark parts for him and JC. He blows up at the end, and then we actually see his charred body still walking around at the end because the slugs are manipulating his corpse now. And then out of nowhere, the alien ship from the beginning of the movie shows up with like a searchlight. And the implication is they're looking for what was lost. But the thing is, as much as I do prefer that ending to the little dog ending, because the little dog ending really kind of undercuts the victory. Whereas the spaceship ending suggests, okay, not only are our two leads okay, but there might actually be an even bigger movie about to happen with the aliens arriving to help find the slugs. But then also we don't know like who or what they are. Like just because they're after the slugs doesn't mean they're going to be friendly to humanity either. So who knows? It's like a bigger movie promised at the end of that 
But the the thing that's weird about it is it still brings up questions, like you said, like why did it take them from 1959 to 1986 to get there in a big alien ship? That it takes presumably... a long time to turn them around yeah. in space. So there's a lot of weirdness to that, but it's it's uh, it definitely speaks to the fact that there's also like a bigger mythology behind it all that would have been interesting, but you know, they, they weren't interested in doing that for this movie. They were just using it as an excuse to get to the zombie stuff, which is good. I mean, there's, there's nice, like I said, there's nice siege stuff. There's some good stalking of the zombies. The slug thing is done very nicely and more goofy than disgusting. So that works. Yeah. I think that's why you can handle yeah. watching it. I mean, neither of us really like bug movies now and like slug like things are right on the edge right on the edge and definitely from the clips i've seen of slither that movie is like that would that would knock me out for days but this is like they look like little plastic fake toys that they're rolling and that's fine i mean it works fine for the movie but it also means you can watch it and be detached enough from it and think oh, they don't really look like anything living right one of the interesting things i wanted to bring up that also speaks to a larger uh, story about the legacy of this movie that I suggested earlier, is that for a movie that is meta and referencing the 50s and clearly has tongue firmly in cheek or slug firmly in mouth and goofy. So yeah, everything is a joke. It's hilarious because if you, if you take it seriously, you just get depressed all the time, like you are. It has some surprisingly... And effective. I don't mean it's bad either. It works, despite the tone of the rest of the film. Some surprisingly dark turns at at least two points in the movie that were kind of shocking when they came up. And then, like I said, at the same time, they didn't feel out of place. They worked well, but it was just weird how incredibly serious and dark it suddenly got. And the two points are, one of them is we actually see at one point that Tom Atkins' character is going to commit suicide that he actually has his stove on and he's going to just let himself die in his apartment until... Well, he's going to blow himself up in he's his He's going to blow himself up. He's like debating lighting a yeah. lighter sitting on his couch. At which point Chris shows up and like needs his help for the big final thing. And that's like he decides... And what I, what I consider a truly brave and heroic beat for this character, a man who lost his girl, because his, his girl was part of the 59 event, a man who lost everything and basically has been a walking zombie his entire life, right? There's your metaphor, you know, through line with that character. And yet decides that rather than kill himself, he's going to step up and help save the day for all these kids. Of course, it also sets up an even bigger suicide for him at the end because he's going to blow himself up. But he's going to do it with purpose and with the intent of helping and saving lots of other people. But it's such a dark thing that they show us the stove and the fact that we know he was going to kill himself. He had duct tape around the door, too, to seal the door yeah. shut. And I mean, I because the beat came after another sort of, I guess, odd story beat. Again, it's sort of that disjointed thing where you find out right at the start that you know, his high school sweetheart who had moved on to someone else the same night the someone else she moved on to gets taken over by the slug. She gets hacked to pieces by a guy who had escaped an insane asylum. That's right. There's a totally separate axe killer in this. Yeah. <laughs> which and is bizarre. you find out partway through the movie that 
he had hunted that guy down on his own and killed him and buried him in an empty lot. Like they always talk about, oh, the killer was never found. The killer was never found because like Tom Atkins, like first year as a cop is like, oh, I found him. I found him. I killed him and I buried him in an empty lot. Oh, and his telling the story to Jason Lively's character is awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> Your high school sweetheart went on with her life. Mine got hacked up by a nutcase with an axe. But that's not the fun part. The fun part's what happened next. What happened next? Guess. The police found him? Close. I found him. It wasn't what you call your routine police work either. What would you call it? Revenge. And so it's, what, like 30 years later? Not quite. A little bit less than that. Yeah. And now you've got, like, all of this weird stuff starts happening and can't figure out, like, what the heck is going on. And then one of the slugs gets, like, under the floorboards of, like, the house mother's cottage at the sorority house into the decaying corpse of the axe murderer that Tom Atkins had buried there, like, 28 years prior and comes up through the floorboards and kills the house mother and it's like what is even happening here and so you know they chase him down and like you know gets into a standoff with the cops and it's i think it's after that point and seeing like this corpse walking around with the axe still which by the way why would you bury him with the axe right like but Whatever. yeah, it's facing him again as a zombie. That's what motivates him to try to commit yeah, suicide. Yeah, where he's yeah. like, that's it. I'm, I'm done. done. Like, <laughs> no more. I'm done. Um, But it wasn't clear to me that that's what he was doing at first. He was just sitting on the couch and they were showing him debating, I guess, clicking on a lighter. But that didn't have context yet. And then when the knock on the door happens and he's peeling the duct tape off the door. Yeah. I thought he was duct taping everything shut to try to keep out like the craziness from outside and it's not until like they're having a long conversation and they walk into the kitchen where you suddenly realize the oven's open and the gas is on and you're like holy hell like that's what he was doing yeah and it's just you can see that moment where he decides all right I'm going to turn the gas off, but he doesn't do it right away. Like somebody else walks into the house. He doesn't, he's not like, hold on a second. I got to go turn off the kill room. <laughs> like he, he still just lets him start talking. And yeah. then later he's like, Oh, all right, I'll turn it off. Yeah. Um, which is, it's, as you said, it's dark. And then we also get our little Dick Miller cameo. One of his many Walt, he's Walt. So he's Walter Paisley again, kind of. Hi, Walt. Well, 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 detective Ray Cameron, son of a gun, is that really you? Yeah, it's me, all right, Walt. How's about you? Hey, can't complain. Cannot complain, Raymond. But the other dark one that I thought was maybe my favorite scene in the entire movie, and I don't know how this would align with what fans, you know, pick as favorites, but for me, my favorite scene, because it was just one of the most effective emotional scenes I've ever seen in a zombie movie, is when Jason Lively as Chris finds that JC has left a uh, a phone message. That, like a tape recording. Yeah, tape recording or something. He he got taken and 
he was actually infected with the slug, but unlike almost everyone else we see in it, he evidently retained enough of himself to still be able to speak, and he leaves a message behind for him that's a goodbye, saying like he can feel it inside his brain and that he like he knows what's going on, he's going to try, and it is so painful to listen to and and so in like emotionally heavy and i think it's an incredible moment that lively plays great too as someone listening to what's like the last recording of his friend who's already dead at that point he even says i think in the recording right that he knows he's already dead but he's still talking because the thing is keeping him going it is so dark i love that speech it's beautifully written it's very heavy and it also speaks to a larger issue about the legacy of this film, which I subsequently did a little extra research on, because for many people who follow the history of queer horror and find things that either deliberately or maybe inadvertently fit into that history, that lineage of things that, that fans can key in on as representative, the JC characters, his friend, is seen by a lot of people as a crypto-queer character mm. he's his best friend evidently been disabled for a long time he has crutches he's like his wingman the standard like goofy sidekick wingman guy but they're very close he doesn't seem he's not i mean he, he jokes with him about like picking up babes that kind of thing but like it's also very much in aid of you know i'm going to make sure you find the girl you want and there's even a scene at one point where they're back in their dorm room and I can't remember the the exact dialogue, but it's some of the effect of, you know, you know, I want you to be happy. I want to get for you what you want. Don't you understand? That's what I'm trying to do. And and it ends with them telling each other they love each other, which is so incredibly rare to see two guys, ostensibly straight guys in a movie, particularly then actually saying in a friendship and being comfortable enough to say they love each other, except that in addition to being friendship, they're very clear indications, and for queer fans, they very much, uh, a lot of them embrace the idea the character of JC is that he may be gay and in love with Chris, and since he can't have him, he wants him to be happy. He wants him to find a girl because he knows Chris wants a girl, and it's a beautiful relationship, actually, in that. I mean, and I can see how in sort of interpretation or in looking for representation it's something that feels very wholesome and very sweet because especially in the 80s you would often have like two sort of different types of these like crypto gay characters that you would see one would be like the evil scheming gay who you'd bring in and right. like and the other would be somebody who's like, oh, it's it's making everyone uncomfortable because like he won't stop coming on to other people that like he's going to like that horrible like stereotype of trying to like convert a straight person, which is awful. But I think the difference in watching that where basically everyone is a caricature. Very much. Yeah. Um, and watching this where you have real people. They do seem Having, a lot more like, real in this. Yeah. Real relationships and real conversations with each other. It's something where it's just this is 
their friendship and they love each other Mm -hmm. and to what extent it's unclear but whatever the amount of love it's real and they certainly feel very strongly about each other and about their friendship and it's a very sort of heart-wrenching scene in the midst of a whole bunch of like goofy little like flying leeches it's like a lot of like playful stuff in this movie and then suddenly really really dark notes but it also to me just felt it's just one of those things where you want to see them together in like the big climax fighting the slugs yeah and instead not only do they kill jc off camera yeah but they have him give the tape recording telling chris this is how you defeat them like you know you have to burn them you have to use fire and it's like he had to die in order to give the answer of how to defeat them to chris and it feels wrong to me it's like i think maybe it's like still something it's an aspect of them being caught in the mid 80s and feeling like you know you have your pairing you have your main guy and you have his love interest and you got to see them like kicking butt and taking out these slugs but why can't you see all three of them together i don't think I, I can't say for sure, but I get the feeling from everything we saw and what I've read that there was no like necessarily conscious intent to have JC be like a closeted gay character. Or, I don't think so either. I don't think that was intentional, but it almost feels like it lends more credence to that interpretation because of the fact that his character is killed off because that's exactly the kind of like callous writing move that happens so often where you have the gay character or the token character killed in order to facilitate the story for the main character. Yeah, it's like a combination of barrier gaze and fridging. Right. It's like a combination of the two tropes exactly. put together. And, and in a way that almost makes me feel even more so that it's a, a solid interpretation to see that that's what's going on with JC. Because of the story choices they yes, made. right. It almost feels like somewhere in their minds they were perceiving the character that way because that's the kind of writing choice that a guy would make writing that character in that time. That essentially it's also, throw another trope here, it's like a love triangle. Yeah. Where you have to at least take one piece off the triangle, at least in their minds. Although I I think a lot of people would agree like they could just exist in harmony together. It would be a very nice triangle. Be a very nice triangle. Not like last episode's triangle, which was not <laughs> good at all. There are good triangles and bad triangles. And also, one of the things that struck me about this, it's one of the reasons why I don't think this fits well for me. And to, to, to move to a totally different aspect of like uh, um, like relationships and sexuality and stuff, one of the reasons why I feel like this doesn't fit well for me in the like Tom Atkins trifecta is that he doesn't get anybody in this. It's like there's an aspect of Atkins as the completely bizarre, almost contradictory ladies' man figure 
where it's like you can never quite wrap your head around why anybody is winding up with him, but somehow they do. And it's like whether it's Jamie Lee Curtis in The Fog or Stacey Nelkin in Halloween 3, like you watch him and you think to yourself, how is Tom achieving this in any way? It's aspirational. And yet he is, and we appreciate him for that. And then in this, he's the incredibly sad, uh, you know, noir detective who lost his girl in the 50s and doesn't have anybody. And and he couldn't even get the girl then. Couldn't. It's true. Yeah. So it's a little different kind of character for him. Although he does have like an actual dream sequence where he's just sitting on the beach in a tux drinking out of a coconut. Which is one of the Jaws homage shots because people cross in front of him like mm-hmm. the wipes that Spielberg did. And it's like that dream version is the actual 80s Tom Atkins yes. that we all think of. Except that it only exists in his own mind yeah. in this movie. And but I'm he, like, no, it's no, there's Tom. Like, he's not the character anymore. It's Tom Atkins in that scene. And by the way, uh, a little bit about the behind the scenes of this is that Fred Decker, who did this, also did The Monster Squad. Another movie I never saw and therefore have no context for in the way that many people from the 80s see. That is another cult classic. It's fascinating that he had a very spotty and sort of abbreviated directing career, but managed to churn out two horror cult classics for a lot of people but he was also very close friends with shane black who went on to um write many things including the lethal weapon movies iron man 3 kiss kiss bang bang and a lot of other stuff that some of which i would say i i still like but of course also that's another story but shane black himself is now very clearly a hugely toxic figure so it also calls into question decker's friendship with him who in the behind the scenes stuff decker seems like a pleasant enough guy but who knows but anyway in the behind the um, scenes stuff he seems like he has a very sort of grounded sense of how the business works and how success or failure doesn't necessarily equate to whether or not what you've made is good but more so like how it's presented and how it's backed and he seems very clear on that and clear on the fact that they did not have the studio's support when this movie went out but one thing i'll say about it is this kind of clarified for me one aspect of why for me and maybe for a lot of the rest of us of a certain time tom atkins kind of always felt like he was always there even though really he wasn't and there are like only a few things like and for me it's the fog and halloween three because it wasn't this but it still is this weird undercurrent of feeling like, yeah, but Tom Atkins was always around, but he wasn't. And there are some other things he did before and that I never watched, but that some people might have. But I always remember that he is the old friend, Danny Glover's old friend. And like, I think it was a former, I think they were all in Vietnam together, I think is what it was. I can't remember for sure now, but he's only in like a scene or two and he has the scene early on that like facilitates the real ramping up of the plot where he gets killed. Like somebody's trying to target, you know, people from that. Cause I think they like tried to smuggle out drugs or money or some, whatever. Um, but don't, don't come for us. Stance. Yeah. That scene always <laughs> stuck with me because he's like drinking from like, I think it's eggnog. Cause I think it's supposed to be Christmas time. Cause everything Shane Black ever writes yes. is set at Christmas and he's holding the eggnog in front of him and then he's shot from behind him and the bullet comes through the eggnog so they and obviously they got like a squib in the thing so it blows up the the thing and he goes down and i never forgot that i always thought visually that was such an amazing way to show 
somebody getting shot is instead of blood you see the eggnog coming out of the front because that gets burst open and and something i think in the back of my mind back then was like that's that guy i've seen in the fog and all the three and i recognize him and i'm thinking there's an element to the fact that he was in that for however briefly he was that gave you that feeling like tom atkins is everywhere <laughs> he's always going to be around and he's in that because he's in this and because Shane Black was Decker's friend and because they were all working together and he wanted him to come over to Lethal Weapon. Apparently, according to Atkins, he wanted him to play Mel Gibson's part, which was never going to go. And Atkins was very clear on it, never. But so they figured out a little spot for him. But uh, so it's interesting how this also is what led to him having that little appearance in Lethal Weapon, probably one of the most mainstream appearances he ever had. Probably the most mainstream appearance he's ever had. And very brief, but very memorable. So, yes, I mean, this movie has sort of a role to play in the history of Tom Atkins as icon also. And, yeah, like I said, I still think he's great in it. It's just that I can't can't have the same feeling for this that I have for the others because I've only really just seen it now, so I didn't live with this movie for all these years. I mean, for me, I think overall it was a decent like night of movie watching for us. Like it's not something where I'd say, oh, I, I didn't like it. Like it was an OK movie um, and everybody really did seem like they were doing their best. But I think it just doesn't gel really for me, mm-hmm. um, especially because the whole movie is like building towards this big climax. Um, and it's always like the line, you know, all of us, like even though I haven't seen the movie, it's like the big line that he has, like in the sorority house. Which, oh, yeah. Well, you know. yeah. And so in my mind, I think I thought there was going to be this epic battle at the sorority house. And I was imagining like the sorority sisters being part of this battle yeah that would have been so much better and instead they're all just running around like ah and he's telling them get out of the house yeah it's like they should all have grabbed something and like they're not at all like involved yeah. in that but also 95 percent of this big climactic standoff is actually just like two people setting fire to the zombies on the front lawn of this sorority house and that's basically it yeah. like tom atkins disappears inside he has a, a spinning like <laughs> battle inside a living room and then the next time we see him he's in the basement like yeah it's kind of disappointing the whole it is thing. i felt yeah. like there was gonna be more more to it at the end also and- the thing with like the bus when it crashes and they all start coming out of the bus and you think oh we're gonna now see them starting to spread out into the town yeah nope and no, again, they, they go right for the sorority house. It's low budget, so it's like they. I, I understand that they yeah. have, they're keeping it limited to the thing, you know, the place they have and the set they want to do. But there's ways you could still make it interesting. If all the girls all like grabbed a dick, what? How much fun would it have been too 
if like everybody grabbed a different thing from the sorority house as a weapon and you'd have all sorts of interesting ways to like how would a sorority house fight off a zombie apocalypse well especially because you have this whole montage scene of all of them getting ready to go to like the fall form uh, which mostly is just an excuse to put some topless shots in there but how like, amazing would it have been if it had then paralleled that with a montage later them getting ready to fight the zombies right, right with like hair dryers and like, yes. i mean tom atkins even uses hair spray to like set something on fire all right call 1986 fred decker because <laughs> we can definitely make this better i mean and also speaking to the fact that they have a lower budget but you want the feel like the zombies are sort of all over town you've got the cops involved in all of this and there's plenty of scenes where like they're communicating via their radios so you really don't even need to see it. You just need to hear it. Mm -hmm. You just need to hear that there is chaos that is spreading throughout town. But it instead, it's like this happens and the bus flips and they just walk slowly yeah. right to the sorority house. They are all just going to one place. Yeah. Which also for survival instincts is a terrible idea for the slugs. Like, I don't, why wouldn't they want to, like, spread out? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't quite get it, but um, it's just one of those where I felt like I was expecting more. So, like, I don't feel like it was less than, but I do feel like I was expecting more from it, if that makes sense. So, it was just, like, it was... And it was good, but I thought it was going to be better. Look, detective, now I don't mean to be rude or anything, but other than just kind of wanting to confess to a murder, is there a point to this story? Spanky, that's exactly what I'm trying to figure out. Well, from tiny little alien slugs to one really big alien slug carpet thing. Uh, <laughs> That's a generous description of it, yes. Uh, we move on to the Creeping Terror, which was... There's not a lot of connective tissue, apart from the fact that the word creep appears in both. But really, the real monster appears to be the maker of the film. Except that we can't be 100% sure about that. Creeping Terrors from 1964. It's regularly regarded as one of the worst films ever made. I've often talked, at least elsewhere, if not here, that although Plan 9, which we just referenced, uh, is often called the worst film of all time, it most definitely is not. Because not only that, but like in just the time you and I have been watching movies, we have seen movies where the movie making is incompetent to the level of making it impossible to be able to watch the film. Ed Wood was able to shoot a movie where, for the most part, the camera's in place, the sets are there, the actors deliver their lines, and a story is told. Is it a good one? No. It's also very funny in retrospect. But I would argue Ed Wood was a semi-competent filmmaker in certain respects. He was someone who had viable ideas that he couldn't quite bring to right. fruition. And he could also point a camera, and it didn't always work out right, but you could still shoot a scene. We've seen plenty of stuff where even that is beyond the person. Even Coleman Francis stuff for Mystery Science Theater fan is worse than Ed Wood's stuff. And this is definitely a movie that edges closer towards something I would say, yes, this could be considered. It's incredible. I mean, okay, so the basic thing you never saw it is that an alien ship lands in like a rural area. 
out comes a giant alien carpet thing with like tentacled eyes on top and a very suspicious looking opening at the bottom which he then uses or it then uses to eat every woman it can possibly find and man yeah, but mostly women. But mostly women. And it usually just involves the actress or the actor involved having to forcibly insert themselves in the opening because the you gotta climb in to get eaten. Yeah, with a lot of a lot of behind shots of of the the Batako region being <laughs> being forced into the a lot the of opening. lower torsos wiggling in the mouth of the yeah. giant phallic carpet. Thing. Yes, which led you on many occasions while watching the Mystery Science Theater Rift version to say this feels like a movie that was entirely devised to satisfy the fetish of the director. How how little we knew at the time, <laughs> how right you were. And so then you get like a guy who's newlywed local cop who's like taking over, taking over a sheriff at this point, like the other one's dead. And then he uh, takes no, over. I think it's like his uncle's sheriff, but his uncle's the first responder who yeah. went out to the crash and he, he was the it. first to get eaten. So, so like, whoopsie, now you're in charge. Yeah, right. So they're investigating. A guy shows up to be like the standard scientist and the alien decides to spend most of his time attacking one dance at a gymnasium. attacks like one of everything attacks like grandfather and grandson just out at the fishing hole attacks like young lovers in a field attacks a picnic full of hippies a dance full of people cars full of people parking a mom at home and her baby the music is done by someone named frederick cop k-o-p-p and one of the things you also key in on that the mystery science theater folks did as well is how the music feels like it's coming from 12 different movies, depending on what part of the movie you're in. But at a certain point, it segues into this bizarre like organ sound that sounds like somebody playing the music along to a silent comedy. And the one thing I kind of like about it, actually, is one of the only things I'll say I like as a positive is there are patch- passages of music in this movie that sound like they come from Phantasm. So it's like, all right, I'll go with that. But this movie is terrible. It's it's terribly made. It's incompetent. He didn't shoot with sound for most of it. So most of it has this awkward narration. According to the behind the scenes, again, which I question everything about, they claim that, well, it was only partially finished. So it was cut together and the narration was because they didn't have a sound track at all. Um, so they had to piece together a plot using mostly voiceover. And it's just absolutely terrible. I would say, actually, this is one I would say is unwatchable without the Mystery Science Theater. I was people. about to say the same thing. We tried after we watched the docu drama reenactment, like unsolved mysteries, whatever it was. Um, we tried watching a little of like the the two K scan restored creeping terror, and like to their credit. Visually speaking, it's probably the crispest I've ever seen it look. They didn't work on it nearly as much as some restorations work. Because they didn't, there's still a lot of artifacts and stuff on it that could have been cleaned up if they cared. But I also don't blame them at all for not wasting the time. But we also couldn't really watch more than like 10 minutes of it without Mystery Science Theater. So, you know, if you want to watch it. Watch it with Mystery Science Theater. It's it's really unwatchable without it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's available as part of like the free 
one of the free streaming episodes, either through Shout Factory TV, um, or they also are up on Tubi, like T-U-B-I, which is an app. Um, you can watch it free with commercials. And I think you should, because I, th- I think it's some of their better bits that they have for Mystery Science Theater. It's definitely Theater, a good episode. Because yeah. it's just such an open book for them to lampoon, because it's like, because it has to be narrated over, it's like they suddenly are becoming their own version of the narrator it also by the way has one of my favorite like i guess these days you could call it like a deep cut oh that's not really what it is but i mean like a very obscure kind of esoteric joke in mystery science theater history which is first of all the music and creeping terror the dance music will stick with you for weeks afterward there's the great host segment where mike has evidently gone insane and decided that He's going to use his incredible new sound system to listen to the Creeping Terror dance music. But he really commits to this incredibly long, I would say silent, but, you know, no dialogue sequence of him just standing there listening to this music in its entirety. But at one point, just randomly picks up a CD and starts circling the inside of the CD with a blue marker. And as soon as he did it the first time we were watching it, I started laughing and you didn't know what that was. And I'd remembered that that was a thing that was going around at the time where everybody was talking about how if you mark a CD with blue, it was supposed to help the scan, the laser, which is, I think, largely crap. But anyway, it was an incredible touch that also I felt like was him really nailing audiophiles in, in a way that like you're only going to get if you get what that is. So I also love in that bit where he like hits a button to like punch up the bass. <laughs> right. But then really puts get it back the, again. The richness yeah. of it. And then they're like, it's okay. Like, mm-hmm. That's the music from the Creeping Terror. Yeah. Sounds pretty lame, Mike. Yeah. Oh, come on. Listen to the definition. The imaging is plenty of air around the instruments. Uh, here, let me replay yeah. this part. Yeah, replay that. Listen to that, huh? Huh. Well, you know, Mike, I think we're going to listen to it from uh, over here, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh look. Huh, there's the sweet spot. Over sweet here. Spot. <laughs> ah, fine. Who needs you? So, yeah. So, in other words, this movie cannot stand alone. It needs the Mystery Science Theater touch. So, a couple interesting things as we segue into the the real dark aspect of this, um, which is that it's written, it's credited to Robert Silliphant, one of several brothers. If you know anything about the golden age of television, and you might recognize the name Sterling Silliphant, who is considered one of the great writers of early television, particularly what today usually more referred to as crime and police procedural stuff. He wrote Perry Mason and Naked City and Route 66, I believe, is one of the guys that can help to shape the many of the trip. Like we were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. where did all this stuff come from? Well, in terms of police and cop and crime shows, a lot of it came from Sterling Silliphant's writing and his contemporaries. And so what's also interesting in terms of, hey, it's a small world, is that his brother's Robert Silliphant is credited as the writer of The Creeping Terror, but it was actually written by his older brother, Alan Silliphant. But Sterling Silliphant, weirdly, was also apparently at a, I think it was at a diner in Texas once for something he was working on, met a fertilizer salesman who made a bet with him that he could make a movie. And it's because of the bet that Sterling Silliphant made with that guy that led to the creation of Manos, The Hands of Fate. So the Silliphant brothers have a lot to answer for. <laughs> and, uh, and then meanwhile over here... Robert's the credited writer, but he was evidently the junior brother working with Alan to put this together. Neither one of them achieved much. It was Sterling who's the one that has all the credits. But 
One of the things we discovered in watching the strange, incredibly hybridized, behind-the-scenes docudrama, dramatization, interview thing. I don't know what that thing actually is. I don't know is. what to call it. I don't know what genre the creep I behind know. the camera is. Before we really get into it, I just want to mention that one of the things we discovered is that Alan Silifon originally intended this movie to be set mainly at Lake Tahoe, that the ship was going to crash <laughs> in Lake Tahoe. And and they didn't do that. They wound up shooting on the Spahn Ranch, which I didn't even really know until you were talking about it. But apparently most That's people the now Manson know it's family notorious. Ranch. Right. Yeah. So... But one thing you learn for certain, the one thing you can definitely walk away with knowing as truth, maybe the only thing, is that Alan Silifant really, really loves Lake Tahoe and wishes he could have somebody pay him to write a movie about Lake Tahoe and still wants to do that. So if you're a filmmaker out there and you want to set some kind of science fiction or horror movie in Lake Tahoe... We have got the writer for you because he really wants to do that. He feels very deeply about it. And if we had the patience to go back through that movie and just create a supercut for you of every conversation where Silifant talks about Lake Tahoe, we would. Uh, but just rest assured that it's enough times you could make a drinking game out of it, basically. Um, he, he he feels very intensely about that setting. So let me set the thing then for this. And I don't think we'll talk much about this. We're already, we're already pretty deep in anyway. I mean, obviously, there's not much to say about The Creeping Terror. It's a bad movie. Yeah. It's, it's stupid. It looks terrible. But it's also, you know, if you're into any of this kind of stuff at all, it's fascinating to see some of these little historic artifacts of that time and these horrible little horror and sci-fi movies and say this thing actually got made yeah so in 2014 pete sherman is the uh, a colorado-based director producer he's worked with disney before they worked on a disneyland documentary and a couple other things he and his team put together a documentary called the creep behind the camera or at least that was the initial intent they were going to interview everyone associated with the making of the creeping terror that was still alive because at the center of it all was this guy, alternately known as Art Nelson, A.J. Nelson, or when credited mostly for the Creeping Terror as his pseudonym, Vic Savage, uh, a guy who seems like he's the dark version of every Ed Wood, Coleman Francis type of character we've ever encountered at that point in like 50s and 60s Hollywood, someone who desperately wanted to make movies absolutely lacked any of the talent or skill to do it but as opposed to some of those others was apparently also a deeply disturbed potentially dangerous person a sociopath is yeah. the, the picture they paint yeah and so as evidently that story came to light Schurman and the team decided that rather than just do a talking heads behind the scenes documentary they were going to dramatize and recreate some of the incidents in Nelson or Savage's life around the making of The Creeping Terror, both before and after. So what? And when I bought it, I had no idea what we were getting into. I thought we were going to be watching, even though I knew it said there's like recreations, I thought, okay, we're going to watch a documentary that occasionally cuts like little dramatizations of a scene here and there. And I thought this is going to be a goofy kind of funny look at the making of a silly sci-fi movie we thought the dramatizations were all gonna be the goofy carpet monster and like we thought it was gonna center around the set and then like by the first time it started to become clear that we were gonna be watching 
quite frankly, I'm sure you agree, way more like brutality and abuse and violence than I think either of us were really prepared to watch. But once we were watching it, I figured, well, we might as well see this through the end. But I was very uncomfortable. It was not a pleasant viewing experience. It was not. I was very uncomfortable watching it. And it showed, basically, he was incredibly abusive in every conceivable way that you can think of to his wife. They were already married then. And they even talked to her. God knows what's, like she even said, has scars. But she made it through and she's an older woman now. She's one of the only ones still alive from that group. Oddly, one of the other people who was directly involved that really shocked the hell out of me and will shock the hell out of anybody out there as a sci-fi fan who doesn't know this already is that someone who worked on the title sequence of The Creeping Terror is, in fact, ILM's Richard Edlund, who went on to become one of the pioneers of uh, Star Wars special effects. Uh, I couldn't believe that, but he actually shows up briefly to be an interview. So it was very uncomfortable to watch. I will say that, like, the actors in it do a very good job, although a very melodramatic over-the-top job of doing it almost as if they're kind of like gleefully leaning into the sleaziness of it all well it's like watching a reenactment of something on like an a and e true crime right. show and That's like right. whenever you watch one of those you know the actors in that scene that's like this is my moment yeah. To, like, show them what I can do. Like, right. I'll give you range. And, like, I feel like that's kind of a little bit what it was, too. And I also think there was way too much of it. That, like, I would say this movie was, like, 80% reenactment. Yeah. And, like, 20% talking heads. And I'm being generous here in in my breakdown. Right. And that's, it's not, it's not at all what it was billed as. And I, I'm not really... I'm not really sure how, still, how to describe what it is. Well, yeah, and I wouldn't, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend it. No. I, I don't think it's worth seeing. I think it's very disturbing and unsettling in a way that's not very informative. And here's the other thing about it. It initially started as, and is still kind of being marketed as, this is like a uh, a look at the the career and the making of the man behind the creeping terror and the monster that he truly was and like learning about that but you don't really learn a lot about the making of the creeping terror uh some of the insights i feel we get are conclusions that we felt we had to make the documentary well documentary i, I use that word the movie but the movie seems to not even want to make there are assertions that it makes including one particular crime that's one of the most like loathsome things I've ever had to even see implied in a movie. I don't even want to talk about that. I know. And it's, it's like, like they they clearly wanted to to depict it and then not address it, which I feel is incredibly cowardly and and very sleazy to do. And then and then there are other things like that, but here's the thing about it that makes the entire enterprise feel like it's a waste of time is that, and we only found that after because I looked it up and I see a lot of other people talking about it, Charles Manson turns up as a character in this. Played probably one of the worst <laughs> act, acting jobs Charles Manson I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's like, this is a guy that we have plenty of footage on. Yeah, like, you, don't, you don't have to like try to figure out a reference point. No. Like If you want to do him, you just do him. Yeah, so this guy's terrible at it. <laughs> but... He turns up because the point they make is that they make a point that Manson, theoretically, they're, they're claiming, 
actually worked on the Creeping Terror because when they shot at the Spahn Ranch while, ranch while he was there, he also apparently procured cars for them to use in the production. Except that as everybody who knows anything about the Manson story has already said online, and I didn't know this, is that he wasn't actually even at the Spahn Ranch until 1968, years after the making of The Creeping Terror. So in other words, that is a flat-out lie. And as soon as you have a um, film... And like a lazy lie. Very. And as soon as you have a film that is purporting to be a depiction of reality, even if it's even partly fictionalized, although in no way do they say that. They say they are dramatizing a real story. As soon as you find out that something that easily checkable is wrong, and presumably done deliberately just because they thought it would be a cool idea to get Manson in there, then as far as I'm concerned, that means you can call into question everything else. In the whole movie, none of it is trustworthy. There were also so many moments in it where I turned to you and I was like, where does this story come from? Because if right, like Nelson's right. the only person in the room with somebody else, like he's like, you know, in the back hallway of somewhere, like doing cocaine with someone who's like stolen like a cake for him or something. I don't even but know it's what like, any of that was. How do you even know any of that? Because Nelson's been dead for ages. Right. And None of these other people were interviewed. Like, if you had those dramatizations and then you had a talking head where you were interviewing the person who was in that dramatization, it's like, okay, that's your source. That's that's your citation for where it came from. But there's all these things that happen where you realize there's no one who's in that room who is currently either alive or, like, even findable to verify that story. So where does the story come from? And... Here's another aspect of this that may be a bit judgy, but frankly, when you find out that people that are purporting to be documentarians are being this deceitful, I think it's worth being a little judgy. It's like one of the things we were going to also look at a little extra they had where Frank Conniff, Mystery Science Theater fame, apparently moderated a panel where they all did some kind of film festival screening of this thing. And Frank is blameless here. It's fine. He's... He's there because obviously the Creeping Terror is the Mystery Science Theater connection. But when you see these people, everyone who worked on this thing, the cast, the director, the writer and all that, they're at this obviously very small scale festival doing their stand up photography thing like in front of a poster or whatever. And like, you know, their version of the red carpet. And it's so obviously being done in one tiny little room and probably to cameras that are being handled by their own family. I mean, there's there was an air of everyone involved in this actually thinking that somehow they were now actually filmmakers in Hollywood because they were adjacent to it by making a lying film about a sociopath that made a crap movie from 1964. I couldn't even wrap my head around the levels of just stupidity i just couldn't and we, of course we didn't watch it we it's meta watch. i guess thanks for listening ghouls in the house featuring natalie b Latovsky and arnold t blumberg you can find natalie on twitter at nb Latovsky. that's nb lit of sky and arnold the doctor of the dead that's me our movies this episode were night of the creeps 1986 
The Creeping Terror, 1964, and The Creep Behind the Camera, 2014. My God, what is it? Fools in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Spanky, guess what happened next? Should you be telling me this? Close.